In early July 2020, the Washington Post published an article entitled, What's Happening in Xinjiang is Genocide. The editorial board continued, China's persecution of the Uyghurs and other Muslims in the Xinjiang province has focused on cultural genocide, concentration camps intended to eradicate their language, traditions, and ways of life. This was cruel enough, but new evidence has surfaced that China has also imposed on the Uyghurs a form of demographic genocide with forced sterilizations and other measures aimed at reducing their population. This discrimination is based largely on their religion and ways of life. The Uyghurs are recognized as a minority group in China, most of whom practice Islam as their religious tradition. According to the Post, there's a new evidence that China is systematically using pregnancy checks, forced intrauterine devices, sterilization, and even abortion to reduce the population of Uyghurs and other Muslims in Xinjiang. Moreover, having too many children is being punished by incarceration in camps. Attempts to reduce and limit the population and the thriving of the Uyghur people is considered a fundamental issue of religious freedom. How vulnerable are different religious groups around the world? Are the Muslim Uyghur people in China at risk of genocide? Are Christians in the Middle East and other parts of the world vulnerable? What about religious liberty here in the United States and religious freedom in the Middle East, Asia, Europe? I'm Mae Cannon, and this is Hashtag Activism. The February 2015 execution of 21 Egyptian Christian men in Libya at the hands of ISIS captured the world's attention. The Coptic Christian men wearing orange jumpsuits with hands cuffed behind their backs. In videos of the executions, men dressed in black stood behind each of the victims, who were then pushed to the ground and beheaded. The martyrdom of these Coptic Christians reverberated around the globe, causing many believers in Jesus to ask the question, how safe is it to be a Christian today? It's absolutely true that Christian religious practice is limited in different parts of the world, but it's important for us to understand that Christian liberty is not the only religious tradition that's at risk, as evidenced by the contemporary crisis of the Uyghur people in China. Religious freedom affects Muslims, Christians, Jews, followers of Baha'i, Buddhism, and other religions around the world. So what is religious freedom? Religious freedom refers to the right of individuals and communities to practice their faith traditions without restriction. Religious intolerance around the world is on the rise, with more than 70% of the world living in places where there are high levels of restriction on religious freedom. Contributing factors to religious intolerance include unstable governments, discriminatory laws, religious extremism, fanaticism, terrorism, poverty, and illiteracy. According to the Pew Research Forum, harassment of religious minorities around the world is at the highest since they began their survey of government restrictions on religion in 2007. For example, in Europe, 20 of 25 countries have active nationalist groups that target Muslims, and 10 of those 25 countries evaluated have groups that actively target Jews. Here to talk to us today about religious freedom around the world is Ambassador Samuel Brownback, Ambassador at Large for International Religious Freedom at the U.S. Department of State. Ambassador Brownback served previously as the governor of Kansas and as a U.S. senator and a U.S. representative for the state of Kansas. 
While a member of the Senate, he worked actively on the issue of religious freedom in multiple countries and was a key sponsor of the International Religious Freedom Act of 1998. Prior to his public service, Ambassador Brownback was a private attorney in Kansas and taught agricultural law at Kansas State University. How would you define religious freedom? Yeah, it's, it's the freedom to do with your own soul what you choose. I've had people describe it to me as God's freedom. It's uh, freedom that God gave us. Uh, to have and to be independent actors and to determine what route that, that we would take with our own soul or that we would choose to do nothing is also is um, a choice that, that people make and that that's, that's your freedom and that you have an absolute right to this freedom. It's a, I believe uh, the United States articulates this as a God-given freedom. And that no government has the right to interfere with that. It's a peaceful freedom. It's one that, you know, we tell people have to practice this peacefully and do, by and large. Now, there are cases where people don't, but by and large, they do practice it peacefully. But it's really just that freedom to, to do and to choose to do with your own soul whatever it is that you choose to do with it. That's a beautiful articulation, the freedom to do with your own soul that which you choose. And and may I ask a personal question? I mean, what's that mean for you? I mean, what's your heart and passion behind this issue that you've committed your life to over the last several years? Uh, you know, mine is that, that I am just, the best probably word for it is insulted uh, that government somehow in many parts of the world feel like they have the right to interfere with this uh, God-given right of a person to be able to choose to do with their own soul what they what they choose. And so that I've got this great opportunity here in this job to be able to articulate that around the world. I remember going to the Rohingya refugee camps in Cox Bazar, Bangladesh, and waking up the next morning in a, in a hotel room near the refugee camps. And you know, I, I've got a, this isn't a great hotel room, but I've got a hotel room. There's an air conditioner. I've got sheets. The people in the refugee camps have none of that. And yet I thought, what a great honor to be able to advocate uh, for people on such a cause. What a great honor to be able to advocate on behalf of, of uh, Christian house churches in China that are being shut down and persecuted by the government. What a beautiful opportunity to be able to advocate on behalf of Pakistani sanitation workers who are, are almost all Christians, to be able to have personal protective equipment so that they're not unduly exposed uh, to COVID uh, virus. What, a, what an opportunity to, to have what the best clients in the world that I have to be able to for. And it's one of these fundamental freedoms that if people in countries get it right, the rest of their freedoms expand. When people get in countries get it wrong, the rest of their freedoms decline. So it's one of these foundational blocking and tackling types of freedoms that the U.S. government is really focused in on and said, let's work on getting this one right, because we know if we can get this one right, we can build on it. And that's what we're doing. Well, and one of the things I heard you just start to articulate is how this impacts us, regardless of where we live in the world. You know, if we're here in the United States or if we're in other parts of the world. And one of my questions for you, you know, many listeners are probably going to be asking the question, 
well, so why should I care? You know, why should this be an issue that concerns me? You know, you're talking about all of these global issues that seem so far away. What would be your response to that question? You know, I, as a, as a person of faith, I, I think the passage in the Hebrews about their, the, the, the chains of others, you know, scrape against my skin. I'm paraphrasing it. But this is a verse that John Brown, the great abolitionist, used to cite to, that he could feel the chains of the slaves you know, rub against his own skin. And it's just this notion to me of a common humanity that we are all and each beautiful, dignified children of a loving God. And that one person's bondage ends up being every, everybody's bondage. And we should feel that, that love and that concern for the other people's difficult circumstances. And if we're in a position to do something about it, we should act. And if we have a calling to do that, we should respond to that. And that's that's my own sense in it. And I, I I'm just I'm deeply honored to be able to do uh, something like this and be a part of a of a government that deems this a high priority to act upon. I think that it's Nelson Mandela who had the quote, you know, none of us are free until we're all free. And so when you talked about that verse from scripture, that's what that makes me think of. If anyone is suffering to some degree, the whole body is suffering. You know, if if we don't respect the dignity and humanity of all, then our own dignity and our own humanity is vulnerable. Just to build on that, that's one of the reasons I tell people that I'm so concerned about what the Chinese Communist Party is doing in Xinjiang, even though it's all it's on the other side of the world, it's one of the more isolated places in the world. And you're kind of going, you know, is this really going to touch me? But the problem is they're they're perfecting these systems of uh, mass ID and facial recognition and cameras everywhere to be able to track and follow everybody all the time and limit their their freedoms, particularly their religious freedoms. Well, as that system gets perfected, it's going to be exported. As it gets exported, more and more people are going to run into it, and it will come for you. And it's much better to go at these things uh, earlier than later when when they get more of a head of steam and um, behind them. Well, one of the things that's been so impressive to me, um, even from a distance, about the work of you know your department and international religious freedom are the ministerials and the gatherings that you've been having, not only the roundtables, but the annual gatherings. And in that regard, the people who you've brought to speak and to tell their stories, you know, I attended, I believe it was last year when Rabbi Myers, you know, from the Tree of Life Synagogue spoke. And, you know, we work with Sheikh Bin Baya and his work in the Middle East, seeking to work against violence in Islamic communities. And I know you've had him speak before, but what are some of the stories that have touched you the most as you've worked with people who've either suffered from violations of religious freedom, but, you know, what stories have moved you and touched you? Are you carrying with you to motivate your work? Yeah, I get, I, I get to hear them all the time and, and they, they do really motivate and uh, touch you. I heard one from a Saudi man that I, was a passionate uh, follower of his own faith, but wanted to wanted to see and know God closer, and saw in in his night vision, and this really made him pursue this faith to follow Jesus. Well, that then really 
caused him a lot of difficulty and threw him in jail and caused difficulty within his own family. And I, I just, I think of people like him who very sincere, very peaceful, but have, have done something that's against the, the grain for the family and the situation. And yet he is peacefully following what his soul is dictating to him and what he wants to. And I think this is, this is the freedom we should have. I also think of those refugee camp places that I've been uh, and uh, different ones that I've met with, thinking that here are people that, that are of a different faith, and yet they're being treated like pariahs, like not even like humans, because they're not of the dominant faith, and how wrong that is, and how much violence it leads to in the world. If we're going to have more peace expand in the world, we're really going to have to figure out how to accommodate each other's sincerely held religious beliefs and, and values in a, in a peaceful manner. Mm-hmm. As you talk about the refugee camps, I um, spent several weeks uh, in the Middle East this past November and had the opportunity to visit with some of the Yazidi refugees in northern Iraq, Kurdistan. And I, I was quite perturbed in my spirit to learn about some of the religious laws on the books in Iraq, where, you know, my understanding from uh, what I've read and, and what I've studied is that, you know, if you practice the Baha'i faith there, your practice of faith is punishable by death, that it's not permissible according to the laws of the government. And, you know, to me, that's absolutely abhorrent. I would hope to anyone that that lack of religious freedom would compel us to engage and to seek to respond. And in that regard, what's the strategy of your work at the U.S. Department of State in terms of addressing, you know, I I think religious freedom is a a multi-sector issue, you know, the political sector, uh, religious actors, civil society, but what's your strategic approach to addressing these realities? Yeah, we're we're coming at it from both the multilateral, multinational approach and a grassroots approach, both. We've got an alliance of international religious freedom. That's of countries, 29 countries that are pushing this topic and working together to push it. We've got a grassroots movement of religious freedom roundtables around the world. And these are grassroots activists that are seeking to really move the culture and the societies and the governments in their in their host countries and really using both of those. We hope to make um, really religious freedom seen as a topic that's in a, in a country's best interest to do. I think before we were relying a lot more on kind of name and shaming, uh, saying this is country's bad, this one's good. Uh, and that just has had limited impact and utility. But if we can have a country see that it's in their best interest economically to be able to grow, it's in their best interest of choice for their people, it's in their best interest of having a peaceful nation and and less criminal activities, less mob violence, less communal violence. If they really push for religious, and I don't like the term tolerance, religious respect, that you respect another person enough to respect their choice, again, as long as they practice it peacefully, that this will really help your society uh, be a more uh, inclusive and and growth-oriented society. It'll have less violence uh, in the society as well. And this is just a good all the way around, rather than the government picking a dominant religion and saying, we're going to enforce this. Uh, That's been a uh, a real limitation on countries and a losing strategy 
4,000 of years that governments have done that in one shape or another. And it's just, it's really never been a, a good strategy for a nation. And it's often led to uh, them losing some of their best and brightest to other places that have more freedom. And do you think the methodology of the roundtables and some of the other work you're doing, do you think it's working? I mean, from our perspective, we're seeing it grow. We're seeing, you know, more nations engage. But from your perspective, is it effective? Or are we making progress? I think we are. You know, we're starting to see some nations open up. We're certainly starting to see a lot more interest uh, in it and a lot more awareness of the importance of it than we have in the past. And this is a right, well, all the human rights have really been in decline last 10 to 15 years, particularly with the the growth of assertiveness by totalitarian state actors, particularly the Chinese, but really to some degree, the Russians. There have been other major countries that are just saying this sort of democratic, free society, human rights model of the West is not working. And will you, you need to go this more totalitarian, mercantilist model. And we've lost ground over the last 10 to 15 years. But I think we're starting to get countries coming back, particularly, you know, honestly, I think this COVID crisis and China's lack of transparency in their system that hid this for precious days and weeks early on, that if there had been an open society and an open internet, an open press there, the world would have had notice of this days and weeks and a lot more, I I think, (laughs) alarm about what was coming to be able to try to head it off. Closed societies are killers. Well, that was going to be one one of my next questions is, as we look at this global pandemic of the coronavirus, do you think that it's bringing, you know, unity or commonality across global societies because we're all suffering from it? We're all in it together. You know, how do you think that's impacting religious freedom, COVID-19? It's it's had a bit mixed. It's been a mixed bag. Yeah, We've had a number yeah. of people that are prisoners of conscience, religious prisoners that have been let set free. And then mm-hmm. governments are saying, well, we don't want them to die in jail. And so they've set them free. And then that, that's been good. We've had awareness of some of the religious minorities and how they're treated. But we've also had quite a bit of scapegoating of religious minorities. We've had them being accused of being the spreaders of the of the virus. And we've seen this feature before in the world when there comes a stress, a tension in the global community. Often people look for people to blame for right. it and, and take it out on them. And so that, that part's been, been worse. Right. That's part of what we've been talking about as we've been addressing COVID-19 is that often the most vulnerable in societies are the most disproportionately impacted, both because of access to lack of resources and things like that, but also because of what you just articulated. Well, this is my... Last question for you, you know, many of the people who are listening to this conversation would be people who self-identify as Christian, who are followers of Jesus. And I'm curious what your words to them would be, and to any listeners, really, you know, when you started by defining religious freedom as the freedom to do with your soul as you would choose, you know, what do you most want them to hear and what do you most want them to learn or to do in responding to concerns about global religious freedom? You know, as a, as a follower of Jesus myself, I, I look at this as the, uh, the great right that God gave us, religious freedom, 
knowing full well he would then have to send his son to clean up our mess of <laughs> sin and other things that we would do uh, with this rite. And yet he does it anyway, because there, there must be something inherently powerful about freedom that God would give us as humanity the right to just tell him, no, we're not interested in you. And, and yet he would have enough compassion on us that he would send his own son to take on those sins for us so that we'd have a way back to the Father. I, this, to me, is just this profound right that we have no right to interfere with for anybody else. And I, I, think, I, think, I think that's um, the way God has to look at it. He just gives us such dignity in our individual choice, and he respects that. Even though he wants us to come after him and do it his way, he respects that freedom, and we should of others as well, and we should fight for it for others. Religious liberty is a prevailing justice issue in countries all around the world, from China to the United States. Several Christian organizations focus on responding to these realities, and some focus specifically on combating Christian persecution, such as Open Doors International and Christian Concern. Christian Solidarity International is a human rights organization that campaigns for religious liberty and human dignity for all religions. How can individuals and churches respond? Pray for persecuted people. Muslims, Christians, Jews, and other religious groups around the world pray and stand in solidarity with people of other religious traditions who are experiencing violence and discrimination. Learn more about religious freedom, including the treatment of the Uyghurs, the persecution of Christians, historic and present anti-Semitism, and anti-Muslim sentiments in the United States and around the globe. Ignorance and fear are some of the leading causes of violence and religious discrimination. The chapter on religious freedom in my book, Beyond Hashtag Activism, provides a great introduction to core concerns about religious freedom in the US, Europe, the Middle East, China, India, and other parts of the world. Practically, consider developing relationships with people from different faith traditions and learning about the ways that their particular communities are responding to realities of discrimination. These are just starting points in becoming an advocate for religious freedom in your own backyard. Specifically, how can we respond to the genocide and violence against the Uyghur people in China? Be intentional about where your clothes are produced Roughly one in five cotton garments sold globally contains cotton or yarn from the Xinjiang region in northwestern China. There, authorities have used coercive labor programs and massive internment to remold as many as one million Uyghurs, Kazakhs, and other largely Muslim minorities into model workers obedient to the Communist Party. According to the New York Times over the summer, more than 190 organizations spanning 36 countries issued a call to action seeking formal commitments from clothing brands to cut all ties with suppliers implicated in the Uyghur forced labor and to end all sourcing from the Xinjiang region of China in the next 12 months. Consider getting involved in supporting the End Uyghur Forced Labor Campaign, a coalition calling on leading brands and retailers to ensure that they're not supporting or benefiting from the pervasive and extensive forced labor of the Uyghur people and other Turkic, 
and Muslim-majority peoples perpetuated by the Chinese government. You can find out more at the website endweigerforcedlabor.org. Links are also available on the resource page for this episode on my website at www.maycannon.com. If you're interested in learning more about religious freedom related to the Middle East, check out the website of the organization I lead called Churches for Middle East Peace at www.cmep.org. I have the privilege of sitting on an advisory board and religious council for an organization called In Defense of Christians, or IDC, that also does great work promoting the sustainability of the Christian community in the Middle East and around the world. These organizations provide some great action steps and ways to get started in order to get involved to advocate and promote religious freedom. Much of the content from our conversations during episodes of Hashtag Activism come from my upcoming book, Beyond Hashtag Activism, Comprehensive Justice in a Complicated Age, out with InterVarsity Press on May 26th. You can pre-order your copy today at a local bookstore like heartsandmindsbooks.com or wherever books are found.